At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, uh, the podcast of all things weird, eerie and hauntological. I'm Lucy and today I'm joined by Joe Ondrek. Hello. Joe, hello. Hi. Um, Joe is someone I've met through Twitter, I believe probably via something related to the podcast or just wider Twitter circles. Mm. And he is also a, a PhD researcher at Sheffield Hallam University uh, and someone who I very much wanted to get on this show at some point uh, for our continuing interview series, uh, sp- particularly because um, your work focuses on a couple of subjects which are very dear to this podcast, which are postmodernism and its multiple variants, uh, digital ghosts, um, some classic hauntology, and also uh, creepy pasta, which is one of my just basically favourite things in and out of the podcast. Um, so yeah, so how's it going? Um, not too bad at all. Uh, staring down the barrel of writing up now, so that's going to be me being a hermit for the next year. But as it stands, absolutely fantastic. Awesome, cool. And uh, so yeah, so on this uh, episode, so we're primarily going to be looking at. Um, a um, an essay you published last year in the uh, Journal of Horror Studies, uh, Volume Nine, Number Two. I'll um, reference that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but um, yeah, and this was uh, entitled uh, "Spec." Uh, forgive my French. Spectre demonstre post postmodernism hauntology and creepypasta narratives as digital fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, the. Well, actually, I've got I've got a couple of places I wanted a couple of things I wanted to dive into quickly. But I mm-hmm. guess um, since we're dealing with a subject matter which, uh, for up, up until very recently, has pretty much existed solely within very particular obscure corners of the internet, um, before kind of gradually growing out of that in various ways, which we've seen recently, um, and existing as an entity which is quite weird, fluid, and decentralized. Um, I think it's probably appropriate to just uh, start with um, how you first came across it and, you know, if you can remember your first encounter with it. Um, That's an interesting question. Um, I think because I'm now three and a bit years deep into a study of it, it's kind of taken over my life, so it's hard to imagine time when Creepypasta has not been there now. Um, (laughs) First one... um... I think it was probably something to do with the Skinwalkers on uh, 4chan's X-Board at some point. Nice. What kind of what kind of time would that have been? Oh, so... God, I was probably about 14, 15, so... Uh... Oh my God, that's, that's a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so it would have been about uh, 12 years ago or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That does seem to, like, this is something I wanted to actually kind of touch on uh, once we're a bit further, well, a bit further into the interview, um, just because we've got a couple of things to cover first. But um, the idea of whether there was a kind of golden era of creepypasta, mm. um, because I do remember it being around kind of in the early to mid 2000s, but I think a lot of my actual kind of engaging with it in a critical sense or you know a critical sense when it when it's been linked to other stuff i've been uh, researching more widely it's always existed as something that's um been around for a while and is now being collected up mm. like um i think by the time i properly got into it and was aware of it as a concept there was already like a a creepypasta wikimedia yeah. thing um and people performing various kind of archiving works um but i think you know that that sense of actually archiving is is quite an important one, I guess, to bring in uh, for the first, well, for the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is um, basically one of the first things that you mention in, um, in your article is, um, well, a a key kind of point of the, um, of the premise is the sense that um, the idea of them existing as digital folklore is something of a misreading in that, I think, well, as you, as you kind of flag up, they are visibly similar to folklore. They have um, one thing you cite especially is the idea of um, the decentralization, but also kind of the, the freeform plagiarism, the mutability and uh, the ambiguity of authorship. 
Um, but your paper engages with them not so much as a form of folklore, but as a form of um, digital digital literature and, and in some ways experimental literature, um, which I found is in fact kind of it's sort of part of part of that status as digital literature is a performance of mm. a, a folkloric engagement. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my background coming into this study originally was off the back of my master's where I looked at um, contemporary novels that remediate digital textuality. So my head and my area has always very much been of digital textuality and the traits and what what it means for text to exist in a digital medium and how it, how it works as text differently to how it does in any other form. Um, so that was my way into this, really. Um, and it's... Creepypast is tricky because it's it's definitely folk-like. Um, as you said, there's the, uh, the decentralisation, the mutability. Um, but those are traits of network digital text more than they are of folklore especially when it's in the digital medium especially the network digital medium decentralization mutability copy and paste that can happen to any piece of text not just creepypasta it's just that creepypasta has a common thread that allows it to be analyzed in such a way i think yeah one of the things i found particularly about it is people kind of going online to present things as a piece of folklore that they've discovered. Mm. And I guess, I guess the question would be like, do you find that um, the, the appearance of it being like folklore is something that's kind of happened after the fact, like some, um, because folklore, the, the idea of like the authorship as a, uh, as a fluid or decentralized thing uh, usually comes at the point of, um, a story being written down. Hmm. So if a story is if a story is written down and it's it's assumed to be trad as just author, hmm. um, then it sort of enters a more kind of crystallized state. Whereas um, these these stories are written as a piece of fiction, which is which is copied and pasted and uh, moved around quite a lot. But because it's digital, you can copy and paste something technically with a hundred percent accuracy. Hmm. I mean, there is a certain degree of uh, reliance on the person copying it to be true to that or not want to make their own particular alterations. But um, I think in the case of things that are connected with the broader kind of field of internet, internet literature um, and sort of just general um, spooky phenomena on the internet, um, these things are, these things are effectively seeing, we're seeing a reverse of, um, of the process we see with folklore, uh, where the se- when it enters into a more formal, more mainstream, uh, more traditional media, so uh, news media or um, or published text, that's the point at which um, the engagement on the part of um, the wider readership switches to something more resembling of folklore. Um, that's just kind of. That's something I found, you know, and I'm thinking in particular with um, the sort of uh, cultural paranoia that came out of Slenderman. Mm. Um, you know, that was something conceived very explicitly as a um, as a piece of fiction, as an invented cryptid. Mm. But um, but then it became mainstream. But then um, then there was a kind of odd crossing point where it did sort of branch out in a more folkloric sense, and then the kind of uh, that removal from its original context meant that there was a more kind of fluid engagement with it. Um, do you find this is something that is a recurring phenomenon? I think Slenderman's a particularly unique case, um, purely because nothing sort of was propelled quite like Slenderman ever was. Um, and I think the the fact that Slenderman got coupled up with a, a moral panic um, and there were ARG games, there was a lot of thing, sort of other storytelling techniques and other phenomena that sort of got sucked into the Slenderman phenomena, not not just the mythos that um, that sort of made made it something bigger than other creepypastas, which means that it, it was engaged with in a different way. I think. Um, 
In terms of things becoming more crystallised as they're written down, um, I think the way text functions, especially online text put out there by ostensibly or assumed to be real people on the internet, um, it has the opposite function in the sense that uh, usually um, text is indicative of a finalised printing process, whereas online text is the remediation of speech rather than us putting forward the formalised printing process. Therefore, it's it's engaged with already on a more fluid way than it would be, say, if we were using it as an analogy for sending letters to one another. Um, mm-hmm. And with that in mind, it's Creepypasta and especially how it formalised um, on the crucible of 4chan's X and something awful mm-hmm. and those sort of bubbling, sort of strange places on the early internet. Um, it's already inviting mutability just through being in these forums and in the form that it's in, um, especially given the fact that those sites like 4chan and Something Awful, they're already hyper-aware of the capabilities of the medium as it is. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to the Slender Man, the fact that the, the initial thread was let's seed the internet with these paranormal images, it's, it's founded on this remix of mutability um, and founded on this sort of fake folklore and the the text that's being put out there to then become part of the narrative usually involves um, an imagined history further back than the initial telling of the story. So um, I think a lot of creepypastas work around this idea of um, the fact that digital text sort of, whilst being the closest analogy in certain network forms being um, remediation of speech, it also discards the ephemeral nature of speech in the sense that it's always a recording. And Mm -hmm. therefore you get instant historicization of any stories told online. So thinking about things like uh, Ben Drowned, that's a story that's told as if it would be being told face-to-face or in installments, um, sort of in a very um, informal uh, sort of verbal sense. But because it's recorded in online text, it's already being historicised as a narrative beyond um, that occurred beyond the time of telling. Um, so it's already inventing its own history as it goes. Um, when they spill out, uh, it takes on a, a very different form, I think. Um, the Slender Man, obviously, that becomes a more folkloric entity because that's it. It spills out into you get not just the access to digital forms and digital media, but it becomes this wider thing that now has access to print. I saw a Slender Man novel in Waterstones the other day, which uh, was tragic, but um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then you get. You, films you get the the news media and then it it does become something bigger that has this the imagined historicized past then spills out into the real world um and is received as a real historicized past um a similar thing happened with candle cove to a lesser extent as well um and then you have things like uh adam ellis's uh oh what's his name now dear david and uh the um the momo craze the momo sort of scare as well <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so there's i understand that I, actually i can't remember who heard this it's a, is there actually a momo film coming out now there are two apparently <laughs> okay yeah. that's interesting I'm excited to see that <laughs> well, i mean like i know it's it's probably gonna be like some like uh, r- rapidly produced like halloween market trash but um I don't know, maybe one might be, maybe the other. Hmm. Um, I was talking to a friend who was, like, opining that maybe there could be some sort of, like, there is thematic grounds for a a more nuanced exploration of what the Momo craze became. Um, But, I don't know, it's a lot to (laughs) to put on the creators. (laughs) But, yeah, I guess um, one of the things that I think is quite quite a good focal point, because you you mentioned... um, 
earlier the the presence of the, the early internet and the, mm. the weirdness of that and the shift in internet culture. Uh, one of the things I found was um, seems that seems quite pressing in, in discussion of these things is the idea of trying to track a timeline, mm. um, both a uh, a literal timeline of when these things were being written, but also more of a cognitive timeline. And I guess this is where it links to uh, the wider study of hauntology. But so I think kind of the, uh, you know, I think um, something resembling what might have become being called creepypasta has existed since the early days of the internet. I mean, uh, there was an example Sean and myself actually talked about in one of our episodes a while back, which is um, the black eyed kids phenomenon, Mm, which isn't strictly a creepypasta. That's a difficult one because that was where it was someone writing something that resembles a creepypasta, but they were con- um, they were trying to create they were con- uh, you're consciously trying to create something that would be interpreted as real, um, and this was something that was actually flagged up on a Skeptoid episode that they found the Usenet posts by the guy who made it, and then found other posts by the same guy. Um, talking kind of openly about wanting to perform a social experiment <laughs> where um, they could see if they could bring something into existence and then that became the Black Eyed Kids. Mm. Um, and w- which, you know, has now entered fully into the realm of kind of modern paranormal law. Um, but I think I think it's just like, just generally taking a step back, it's very interesting to see uh, how the thing has progressed because the history of the internet is... Um, operating simultaneously with um, the concept of the death of history. So mm-hmm. that is uh, bringing it right into the hauntological realm, um, just uh, inevitably. Um, so uh, there's kind of like first early kind of stirrings of something resembling that. But then uh, you talk about particularly, you uh, bring up the um, McHale, uh, Brian McHale's article uh, mentioning uh, the... What is it? How's it phrased? The something like the ontological. Oh, the the erosion of ontological stability. That's Actually, the I one. Love yes. that phrase. Love it. Yeah. No. Beautiful. <laughs> and um, and it's interesting that that is kind of that's focused around nine uh, eleven, mm. uh, which I mean, it's that's kind of an interesting point because you know that is um, that would have been happening at as a lot of the people who we were presumably writing things, these things were coming of age. So that's uh, significant. And also I'm not as well versed a critic of this, but I've heard people talk about kind of 9-11 marking a kind of a crossing point into, um, into just what mainstream news media, the the kind of the tone and uh, approach of mainstream news media and, and there being a definite, move towards a more theatrical or a more um or a more structured or um or in in some ways just kind of less real approach to how news media was formed mm. um since then and people looking at um 9/11 as being a unique example because um it was something happening on US soil that was extremely major but because it was under a lot of scrutiny from the point at which, from the very first instance it was happening, um, where people didn't necessarily know what was happening. So the news media that came out of that was very distinctive in character. But I mean, that's just like thinking as a historical moment. Um, But then after that, you've kind of, that was kind of, I find in the years after that, or in like within a year after that, the internet in what we recognize as its modern form really started coming together because that's when high-speed broadband um, mm. started started becoming a thing and like rapid internet on a much wider basis was something readily accessible to people. But um, I guess kind of my general question is um, have, have you found uh, much of a kind of timeline is um, becoming present through your research and do you feel that we're entering into a particular moment now uh, or or do you feel we're coming to the culmination of something? Um, it's funny you mentioned earlier the, the golden age of creepypasta. Um, mm-hmm. And I think focusing on 9-11 as a nexus point is there's a certain significance there, especially since um, the the litany of post-postmodern theories that are planting their flag in this cultural moment, so many of them cite 
9-11 as this cultural turning point, an exit from postmodernism into something that may be related, but is a certain degree of difference away from postmodernism to be called something else. Um, and yeah, uh, I think with regards to to Creepypasta, um, especially around the, 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 the turning point of high-speed broadband and this sort of almost explicit fictional quality of reality that sort of that, that 9-11 exposed um, mm-hmm. to an extent. I mean, from not only the sheer spectacle of the event itself, um, the way it was um, narrativized by news media, um, but also the 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 flurry of um, uh, conspiracy theories that came out um, not even before it ended. Um, there yeah, was definitely it almost it almost highlighted um, something that maybe people were uh, implicitly aware of, which was sort of how much narrative and myth makes up our reality, um, and. I think the golden age of creepypasta was occurring around about that time um, in sort of uh, later conference papers and things. I, I make a big distinction between um, the early internet and the burgeoning Web 2.0 uh, social media oh, glossy surface internet. Um, and I think that that's, that's important as... Um, Web 2.0 social media has become sort of more enmeshed with our embodied day-to-day lives. Um, but the golden era of Creepypasta, I think, was mm-hmm. this... Um, the 4chan something awful. There was an awareness of the fictionality of the medium, but the fact that it was fictional because everything was fictional at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned in, in uh, my article um this characterization of the hauntological internet as being the state of existing in the internet which is you must um that the the fact that it is all surface digital textuality means that me and you um if we were talking via um just web chat we would be converting all of our sense of presence into digital text um, mm-hmm. And there is no ontological distinction between that digital text and the digital text of a fiction, like an explicit fiction, say creepypasta, on that same medium. Um, hence, things like Dear David happening through Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I think the fact that the hauntological internet um, is something that's been around since Web 1.0, I guess you call it, um, mm. all the way up to now, shows that there's a through line through there. But... Um, when I started this project, uh, there was no such thing as the term fake news. And yeah. that has had a massive impact, I think, on the production of Creepypasta in the sense that before um, news media and the term fake news and misinformation became such a hot-button topic, there was a level of sincerity in this engagement with our digital textual presence um, purely because that's how these forms work. You need a level of sincere engagement, otherwise we mistrust every presence of another person online. Um, which, since there's been so much in the news about people being Russian bots, that mistrust is now more prevalent than sincere face value acceptance. Which means that you're not seeing as much creepypasta get spread. It may still be being written, but it's not actually taking off in the same way these days. Purely because mm. the trust in these um, uh, social media spaces is being eroded to the point where we're having a hard time accepting other people's opinions on climate change, let alone whether or not they experienced a paranormal incident somewhere. Um, so the timeline, I think, moves. Sorry, um, the timeline I think moves um, from a hyper-awareness in the fictional nature of the well, the fictional sort of surface nature of digital textuality through to... Oh, uh, you're still there. You're frozen a bit, I think. Hello? Hello. We can... Hi, Dar. Yes. Hi, yeah. Uh, so the feed dropped up for just a second there, but um, 
we were talking about uh, fake news and the 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 kind of the prevalence of that over the last couple of years. Um, yes. 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 So um, let me just try and pick up my thread again. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we got to the point about climate change. <laughs> ah, yes. So um, with regards to uh, creepypasta in its current state, um, I think because people are now having a hard time trusting other people's presences online, um, it's undermining the storytelling process now um, with Creepypasta. Uh, so when it used to be a case that you could um, you could tell a story of, say, encountering a skinwalker in the woods, um, you know, there's a there's a brilliant one um, that's been archived from 4chan called um, Cabin Memories, which very much is in this vein of, you know, I, my family encountered something way back when, I'm telling the story now. Um, you couldn't do that now, um, especially not on a you know, a uh, social media platform. No, you mm-hmm. might be able to get away with it on 4chan with suspended uh, disbelief or no sleep, which are different platforms, um, a yeah. different storytelling area. No sleep is very much one where it's considered like, ah, oh, no sleep is one considered like this is fiction. We are writing as fiction. Yeah. It's there on the surface. Yeah. Um, so it's it's... A case now that I think creepypastas are still being written, but they're being written as a very particular type and mode of fiction, rather than things that would spill out, be spread, and unsettle um, other surface digital textual arenas through that spread and appearance as real people. Um, That level of spread isn't necessarily happening anymore. Um, so I, I think about uh, the spread of Candle Cove, um, and that was it was written in two thousand nine. Um, I think it started spreading and taking off around in around two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, um, and that was performed on forums, taking the shape of the original web conversation that Chris Straw wrote. Um, but that unsettled because it appeared as real um, in these areas where people were sincerely accepting other people's textual posts as indications of human textual presence. Um, So this fiction then hijacked that presence, which allowed sincere belief in it, um, which is something I don't necessarily think would happen as much now. Um, Where I I think you end up having to do things like uh, Adam Ellis's Dear David story on his Twitter, where he's using his own personal Twitter page to tell this story. Um, which seems almost like something that you shouldn't do because he's essentially mm-hmm. um on the one hand he's, he's there's that level of believability to it because he's you know um staunchly um insisting that this story is true, but he's doing so on his sort of semi professional personal twitter page um but it's also drawing attention to the fact that um because of the way digital textuality behaves, especially when used by people, he's drawing attention to the fact that we we all, in order to engage online, have to fictionalise ourselves in a certain extent to exist mm. online. And I think that's that's where the unsettling nature of his story comes from. It's not necessarily the haunted kid with a dent in his head. It's the fact that it's exposing the the collective belief in social media and its current shaky state. You know, it's mm. almost like the, this, the whole the whole operation's almost in a state of collapse at the moment, and it's I, I yeah, I think that's it's, yeah. It's got that quality of the uncanny to it as well. The sense that this is someone presenting as you know presenting as a human, but um, it's that sense that like you know you can tell it's different from someone if they're just like telling a convincing story and or just lying mm. uh presenting it as true um there's it's it's kind of like both harder and easier to do that because uh you're not kind of you're able to kind of withhold enough information to make it um to make it believable and prevent anything directly unverifiable um there, there's that degree of care but beca- but because of that uh it accentuates the the idea that this is something that's unreal or fabricated in some way um 
it creates a greater tension between the real and the unreal in that sense and that creates a, a version of kind of the di- digital uncanny perhaps yeah yeah um it's this is kind of where i'm trying to draw a lot of my work at the moment is towards this idea that um with creepypasta ostensibly the the, the monster doesn't matter at all be it Slenderman, be it um, a haunted kids TV show, be it a haunted video game cartridge um, the monster itself is not the, the the source of horror as it were, it's 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 an overt impossibility which then allows us to see the true sense of horror um, which is um, sort of the the state of digital communication and the state of the digital realm as it is, which is inherently uncanny and inherently hauntological. And we inherently have to fictionalise ourselves to exist in there. And it's something that we try not to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we start thinking about it, um, it then, it starts to unravel. Um, And I think that's what Creepypasta does. it, It punctures through this this level of belief and um, sincerity in surface digital textuality, um, and exposes the the gap between existence and language, and that's where the horror lies. Um, mm-hmm. There was a brilliant quote actually in um, uh, Maggie's personal canon podcast um, where she interviewed Nick Land, um, yeah. and. Uh, Nick's talking about um, In the Mouth of Madness, and he talks about... The, um, I haven't heard that yet. That sounds that sounds fascinating. It's fantastic. It's really, really good. Um, and he talks about um, the depiction of monsters in the, in the film, and it's... I've got it written down here. It's, he says, when you see something horrible, it's not that you're seeing what the movie's about. You're seeing something that's producing a crack a crack in things through which one captures a shadowy glimpse of something behind the monster that's the real object of the movie. Um, And Mm. that quote, you could exchange movie for creepypasta there in the sense that (laughs) what it's doing is cracking out, uh, producing a crack and sort of widening a gap in surface digital textuality, um, using the impossibility of a monster in a realm where we are accepting digital present uh, digital text as the presence of real people um so by dropping the impossibility of a monster in through the the possibility of real people we end up with this this fracturing effect where mm. we're not sure what we can believe through this flattened um homogenous digital surface and it's through that gap between existence and language that the real horror comes through i think yeah definitely and um, i think um I was just reminded, like, to, like um, I, I'm, I'm remembering the exact moment in Mouth of Madness, I think, where that comes through. There's that, you go to the writer, you know, the writer's room, and mm. what is it? What's his name? It's, it's like, S- Sutter Sut- Kane. Yes. The place, the, the basement of the church where he's writing, and there's just the great sort of slime entity. And it's like, yes, this is the true kind of amorphous Lovecraftian horror mm. that I'm channeling into something more mundanely recognisable, even if that in the real world is is horror also um yeah i was just reminded of the well just i always i always end up coming back to the marble hornet series simply because Mm. they seem very keenly aware of some a lot of these things you're talking about because they've made the the medium itself such a source of horror that um it's like the monster doesn't matter but the monster is simultaneously something operating through the medium and is the medium itself uh, yeah. and, and so and you know actually develops over time i think in in becoming kind of more digitized and more strange mm. as the series went on um but it's interesting as well that you bring up nick land because the, at the time mouth of madness was coming out that was you know the the if i'm getting my year was mouth of madness was like 1995 96 i think it was uh i think it might have been 94 Okay. Yeah. Also, I'm just going to shut the window. Uh, massive storms just rolled in. Um, oh yeah, that's currently hitting London. <laughs> uh, also, it's brilliant because, as you mentioned, Nick Land, a massive thunderclap occurred, which <laughs> he would love, I think. Oh gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. 
Yeah, awesome. But um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting because um, this would have been, I guess. Well, just gotta probably shape the timeline a bit. But like, this was you know during during the period when CCRU was definitely a thing, mm. and uh, when his writings. Well, his uh, and, you know, others' writings about uh, the concept of hyperstition was coming in, uh, which is kind of, I guess, was feeding on uh, speculation about the possibility of um, of uh, Web 1.0 and what that mm. might mean at a later point. Um, but, I mean, that, you know, that discusses in terms which I think hadn't really been a thing that existed at the time, you know, the, this idea of the feedback loop. And yeah. the, the you know the tenets of um, tenets of hyperstition and kind of the the shifting the shaping of realities and that's one thing actually I always whenever I whenever I bring up hyperstition I always want to caution myself a bit because it is I think it's the same thing happens with hauntology there's sometimes a um, an impulse to kind of run with it in a direction forgetting that it does actually have some very specific like technical framings yeah that, or you know yeah. technical terminology and very direct function it's not just a, a a fluid sense of um of shaping reality in, in a form of chaos magic but it's but at the same time it is because it's but it's dealing with uh, versions of cognition mm. uh, and the questions of cognition tied into that but um but yeah it's I've, i definitely i think i have to hear the um what was the podcast called it's, it's maggie is it Mar- margaret zebert yes um, it's a yeah, personal I've, I've canon podcast Awesome. Yeah. yeah, I need to check that out. Um, but yeah, because it's, it's interesting as well, because um, like one of the things, well, one of the times we brought up Nick Land earlier on this podcast was in our episode about hardware uh, way back like last year, where we talk about, where he, he gives a very interesting angle on, um, on, the, on Web 2.0 and the implications that's had, hmm. the fact that it's kind of, I guess would be would be what one one described as a kind of reterritorialization, the, the turning it into a glossy corporate owned, centralized, mm. uh, um, de um, well, a, a, yeah, a centralized f- uh, functional uh, corporate space where um, the anonymization, which was so key to a lot of what happened with the early internet, is active, you know, explicitly um, eroded, yeah. um, and. Uh, and like um, identification and submission of data is a, is pretty much a requirement of access, um, and yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing. But um, I think just coming back to um, the point you were making about the kind of the present impossibility of um, of creepypastas operating in quite the same way, that idea of fake news kind of struck me because well. This personal experience. Basically, my introduction to Creepypasta was off the back of um, off the back of a general interest in paranormal um, mm. paranormal con- conspiracy law or you know things to do with uh, cryptids and stuff. I think it was uh, basically just reading through old posts on the Fortean Times message board, which is a fantastic resource of things. I oh, think yeah. it's all been like archived somewhere, but. I basically ran out of good content there and moved on to Reddit, where the now legendary um, the glitch in the Matrix thread, mm. which is like several thousand responses long and has some amazing just kind of incidents of high strangeness that kind of some of them have a bit of a lore behind them, or sometimes people are projecting um, projecting their own sort of interpretations on them or trying trying to connect it to other things. But a lot of that is just a weird thing happened. I can't explain this, but it goes into a very kind of pure place of just cognition of mm. um, you're you're just seeing a kind of naked representation of how um, the mind deceives itself, and a con- and a kind of like recognizable continuity or uh, pattern emerges from that. But I think it was from there I, I just moved on to like no sleep, and then on to creepy pastas. Mm. Um, but just just kind of related to that, um, I found that. In the same way you talk about kind of um, creepypasta becoming impo- becoming more difficult in the in the present age, um, I found like genuine good paranormal content is also mm. on the wane because because um, I've always been you know fairly settled you know extremely skeptical about it, but the the um, the enjoyment of I derived from from reading that was often 
I'm encountering... It's an encounter with a mind space of someone who's... Of something very, very different from me. And so it's the recreation of the experience of believing in something like mm. that. Or experiencing something genuine, genuinely inexplicable happening. Um, so that was all the, always the appeal. But I found... There's a very, very recent... Well, I found, you know, a, a uniquely modern phenomenon where... Um, I guess, like, the, the example I, I wanted to cite, well, that I often come to with this is, um, there was, I mean, I, I listened to a lot of Last Podcast on the Left, basically, and they, they've started, yeah. it is a fantastic <laughs> podcast, um, and one of the things they've started doing is just, like, kind of, like, a weekly thing where they just talk about weird events in the news, hmm. and, um, and one of the things that came up was, like, a time traveler story, and time traveler stories are, like, classic, um, weird modern folkloric mm. or paranormal thing um where it's just different stories get passed about or remediate or you're remediated and things um but then it was a time travel story that i think came from something like unilad and uh they quoted the tra- the time traveler's statement verbatim and it was kind of fairly innocuous and then it got to the line you know i've been to the year 3000 not much has changed but we do live underwater and that <laughs> created that created a bit of a, a stir because they didn't know the reference um oh, wow. and every like they got thousands and thousands of people writing to them because i think it was like british people will know of it from the busted song but apparently mm. it's more famous in america because the jonas brothers covered it which oh my god like, yeah <laughs> why anyone would even like commit that to writing let alone cover it is baffling but um but i guess like what what that brought home to me is the fact that i was engaging with this stuff fully in the knowledge that it didn't happen Mm. but now i've got that kind of double layer of it didn't happen but also the fact that i'm hearing about it or you know the 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 some the the thing that wasn't real was report wasn't also wasn't said mm. <laughs> it's that meta unreality that it's like oh no no one believed it in the first place you know this this thing that was made up was was doubly made up yeah. and um and i think that's just kind of like that's the that's that's where we're living <laughs> it's um yeah yeah i guess although i think kind of the flip side to that would be um the fact that because you know i identify you know from from my own engagement with creepypasta i identify it with something that is more connected to um which is part of a kind of wider sphere of um hyperstition and conspiracy law mm. and things i think they they occupy the same spaces and there's a lot of crossover and um it's hard to come a, come up come against one without coming against the other but um i guess for example, did you see that show Hellier that came out, I think, recently? Uh, it was an Amazon series. No. I think I missed okay. that one. Okay, it was basically... Um, it was your usual kind of, like, most haunted type scenario mm. where um, it was like a team of investigators go to this town in Kentucky because it starts out, like, fairly, like, alien. Well, you know, alien-centric, but it turns out it's actually goblins coming out of this cave. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's kind of fascinating, but one of the things that I found quite striking about it is the fact that um, the people who were making it um, had come from um, very much, very kind of online-centric paranormal communities. Hmm. Um, but the way they operated was very striking because they just talk endlessly about synchronicities. And... Hmm. Um, like they, you know, they go out and interview people and do that trad kind of ghost hunting thing. But then, it's it's strike, you know, it's it's really striking just how constantly they're talking about like um, the number of coincidences. You know, they'll they'll make a phone call and then the length of the phone call will perfectly coincide to the the number of miles they had to drive to get to a thing. <laughs> and they're constantly on the lookout for stuff like that. And that was kind of interesting because um, I think it's like well. One, it's a sign that you know they've um, they've got to such a sort of hyper aware state that um, there's a convergence of kind of like meta superstitions uh, converging, but also um, also this is feeding back into the um, the accelerationist idea of hyperstition because one of the four kind of tenets that is brought up in one of the original uh, some of the original literature about it is the 
intensification of coincidences. Mm. And whether this is some... I don't think this is something they would have pulled directly from that, but it seems to have been... I don't know, entering a feedback loop in and of itself in that these mechanisms are now spreading out into the world and, and becoming their own feedback loop, which is, I don't know, just a bit of a tangent there, but I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, it's it's interesting because obviously, I mean, my, my, my project is essentially trying to find the limits of creepypasta as a genre, really. I mean, my, my whole thing is it's, it, it's, it's a genre that emerged from the internet, um, but there are limits to it. Um, case in point, uh, the Slenderman film is not an example of creepypasta literature. It's it's you know Hollywood opportunism basically. Mm. Um, uh, the Channel Zero, the sci-fi uh, series that adapted a different creepypasta every season, whilst genuinely quite good, um, I wouldn't call creepypasta, but is in the spirit of creepypasta through its remixing of the initial narratives. But this seems like something that actually is ba- um, what's baked into it is sort of the the mechanisms of creepypasta, which is genuinely really interesting. So I'll have to check that out. It'd be even more interesting if it turns out that it's based on some kind of lost creepypasta narrative, because that would be delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um... I was actually going to sort of bring, well, maybe mention the fact that, like, I know, I've, I've de- I've de- my reading about um, hyperstition has, unfor- has unfortunately never reached a point where I feel comfortable like, speaking with any authority on it, but I know that it has some connection to uh, Jung, and um, mm. there is, I think, from what I know of Jung, there's certainly an amount to be brought in on both ends, in that um, he was, obvi- you know, he was coming from a psychiatric background and talks a lot a lot about things that come under the sphere of cognitive study rather than paranormal study but mm. also um but also i guess like there is a long standing tradition of in some cases real charlatans using young to get uh young to give a a gloss of uh scientific credibility to um sort of weirdly sort of jungian filtered um pseudoscience mm. <laughs> and some yeah. of which concerns the paranormal um, but I know that, I guess that's probably, I think that's probably more the route that the people of Helia were, well, the, the team in the show Helia, I think Helia was the town we're feeding into, but, um, but yeah, so, well, I guess these are things that have emerged through, um, through the, 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 the 20 odd years or you know nearly 20 years that we've been talking about between 9/11 and mm. the present day um about this this modern age the development of web 2.0 but also the development of a series of um criti- of kind of various critical responses that have come up following that you meant you talk about post postmodernism digimodernism and also the concept of metamodernism mm. I guess we've covered that generally the the idea that um well what you were saying with the 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 participation requirement of mm. the suspended disbelief or the um in some ways getting on the joke or others kind of willfully doing something uh, I think you, it's phrased as informed credulity or something informed that. naivety yeah um yeah, I mean, what I think unites, especially digimodernism and metamodernism, is this awareness of and relinquishing of oneself to the fiction of existence, mm. I think, um, which applies wholesale to online existence, um, in the sense that, you know, going back to the idea of the hauntological internet, you must at least semi-fictionalise yourself in order to exist and participate on there. Um, And to do so, that requires a sort of... a giving up of one's grounded sort of senses in what you believe in order to participate and flow through the fiction of digital participation. So, um, Kirby's Digimodernism, he talks about the apparently real... um, now, his book is absolutely fascinating, but quite frustrating because he doesn't actually talk about uh, uh, social media or online or digital uh, presence very much. He talks a lot about uh, reality TV, mm-hmm. um, 
which when you consider the 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 heightened performance of existence on reality tv say something like um and i'm going third hand here off my knowledge of the show but um things like love island i assume um I, yeah i, I can <laughs> go with that <laughs> um so you've got these real people um, feeling what I assume are real emotions, but then heightened to a certain extent is no different from people's engagement in sort of the the online gossip of Facebook groups or even the performance of um, aesthetic existence on uh, um, Instagram or maybe even to an extent uh, when people have uh, flame wars on um Twitter, you know, it's it's the sense that, that there is there is an existence of real feeling of of reality to it, but it's it's heightened. It's 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 a performative, apparent reality rather than the true sense of reality of the feelings. Um, uh, I think the most benign example is um, when people type out in all caps, "I'm screaming" in in a response to <laughs> a funny image where they basically just went. <laughs> you know, it's 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 something heightened in the base of in the basis of reality, and we know that everyone else is complicit in doing this, but we just readily accept it as part and parcel of how you must exist through digital text is through this heightened existence. So, uh, Kirby's Digimodernism, his apparent reality, ties in quite nicely to this idea of performatism and. Uh, um, Oh yeah, the um, so yeah, you've got uh, performatism and um, the uh, the apparently real. Um, they 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 work hand in hand, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not at all beholden to any one of these theories. Um, I, it's just that they emerge around the same time, describing symptoms that can be applied to online existence in a very complementary way. Totally. Yeah, I think. These are yeah, they're all they're all concepts I'm fairly new to. I mean, so like yeah, the concept of meta meta modernism was one I pretty much only came across in like the last couple of months um, because I got blocked by someone very notable for having penned a manifesto of meta modernism. Me too, uh, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, we can talk freely about this subject because he's also blocked this podcast. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, um, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean that's one of the things that's quite frustrating. I think in a weird way is um, I'm not sure how related uh, the Luke Turner artistic brand of metamodernism is to Vermeulen and Vandenacker's sort of theoretical metamodernism. Um, mm-hmm. There is also a third theorist who uses metamodernism as well. Um, I'm not sure whether they're in conversation or whether their branch is the same initial theory or whether they're fighting over who claims the term. Um, yeah. There are obviously shared sort of um, uh, beliefs and shared approaches within their metamodernisms, but uh, um, the fact that um, I think Luke Turner's manifesto, his idea of oscillation, is also something that uh, Vermeulen and Vandenacker could bring up. Um, mm. The fact that this oscillation between um, modernist naivety and postmodern um, irony and scepticism uh, is somehow under threat by exposing yourself to the views of people who, I don't know, I didn't even know the bloke, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's there's, there's, maybe that's part of the irony side of things that I'm not quite getting, but, um, yeah, it's it's... It's an interesting theory. Um, like I said, I'm not entirely beholden to it, but the ideas of performativity and this wanting to grasp some semblance of sincerity and even if it is a semi-ironic sincerity in the wake of a wholesale postmodern culture is something that I think we do see through social media. Um, mm. You know, it's there are real feelings behind the exaggerated performances. And I yeah. think that's the best way to put it. Um, and that's that's something that kind of translates over into a lot of political discourse, honestly, you know, just mm. gem- generalised kind of concern trolling. And then the maybe for another podcast, the you know, the, the fact that I think it was like the thing that Luke Turner was responding to 
I, I think it's, it was difficult <laughs> to trace, but um, was he was like the Nina Power, um, what is it, Justin Murphy fit. I think they, they were involved in something dealing with the concept of radical honesty. And they, they, even the concept of something like radical honesty is an active participation in, it's another f- form of kind of performativity, like yeah, the performance yeah. of radical honesty, which can, you know, I'm so, and being so kind of furiously adamant on this is, is not itself a performance. But then again, I haven't actually listened to the thing. I think I've read some transcript yeah. bits, but yeah. Um, but getting kind of like, get it, this is getting off the topic of creepypasta, but it is fascinating. But it, it all links, I suppose. Yeah. I guess like one of the, the things I would say is like, so we've talked about the idea of it's kind of growing impossibility. Do you think there's going to be any kind of resurgence? I say this because there's kind of, there are moves, especially in recent years or indeed in recent months of people to kind of re-anonymize um, seek out territories away from the uh, mainstream um, social media platforms or kind of um, go a little deeper or retreat in some ways. But um, I guess, you know, a generational shift will be happening in that process as well uh, because I think I think it's safe to say that, like, Creepypasta was a extremely kind of millennial thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, uniquely millennial. But um, do you... I mean, do you see any kind of, like, potential future of what what might follow? Um, there, there are two forks to this, I think. Um, and the one plays into a very storied lineage of gothic writing, all the way back to the Castle of Otranto. And I think there is always something in a new communication technology um, inviting horror to appear as real when it first occurs and then sort of receding back into a traditional fiction. So it goes all the way back to the Castle of Otranto, which was originally anonymously published. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the second edition came out. It's like, no, no, this is the first Gothic novel, you know. Um, And then you move forward. You have things like uh, Phantasmagoria, which uh, a lot of the stage techniques used in that then go into traditional early cinema and the adaptations of uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, Move further still, you end up with uh, the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, um, Cannibal Holocaust, Ghost Watch, um, The Blair Witch Project, and I think Creepypasta is very much in this lineage of jumping on new communications technology, presenting a monstrous impossibility as real through this technology as it's new and then receding into something a little bit more traditional um mm-hmm. i think the turning point for this um if you know it does gain momentum and people do start thinking about it and studying it in this kind of way is uh the interface series on reddit um i don't know if you know that one um it was also under the name mother horse eyes oh right no i I think, because um, oh, I, I remember I came across it in, in your essay and I was going to check it out. So is that, Kramer, is that the one where it's someone someone posted a series of like detached fragments mm-hmm. um, of stuff? And then if you went back to their, um, went back to like, you know, their, their posting record and, you know, opened them all up in different tabs, you could read a consistent narrative. Uh, but... It yeah it it created I guess you know, I I remember that coming out because there are a lot of, a lot of things were flagged up in relation to its um, it's just reaching out across as many different um, things as possible to bring people together so um, it felt like a clawing back of that previous sense of mystery but yeah yeah um, yeah it's it's first of all it's it's I think the most literary creepypasta narrative in terms of its content it's a bloody incredibly well written um, weird fiction tale um, and it, it spans impossible um, breadths of time and space it's 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 a fantastic story but also it it ran this sort of knife edge between traditional creepypasta in the sense that people started posting the fragments around as inherently weird little non sequiturs and vignettes um, and then People that the community came together around it, thinking, "Hang on, no, this is this is a a narrative here," um, and it was reported on both as a terrifying 
potentially real odd story and um, I can't remember who it was now, it might have been Wired or someone referred to it as a new form of novel and Mm -hmm. I think that is in that lineage of gothic writing I think that is sort of the receding back into fictionality that Creepypasta once had Um, it's this non-linear fragmented novel of some form um, which is still technically going on and still sort of folding uh, story world ontologies into itself. You've got an admin of the for the um, subreddit um, who was originally there to compile the posts, also becoming someone in the story. It's it's doing things mm-hmm. that are related to Creepypasta and a one foot in Creepypasta and one foot in a more a, a new form of fiction. I think is the best way to describe it, and an, an explicit form of fiction at that. Um, so that's the the one one prong of the fork I think that Creepypasta is going to go into is this sort of this presenting as real and then receding back into something that's m- new, but also more declarative of its fictionality. And on the other hand, and I think you've got things like uh, Momo, which isn't necessarily a narrative, and I mm. think the fact that the sort of the, 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 the Zuma thing is challenges. Oh god, that makes me sound really old to say it like that, but you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> um, and it's it's it that taps into the idea of performatism a bit more, um, in the sense that you are um whether or not anything did actually happen challenge wise, there was a narrative set up which was a conjuration of an encounter, not necessarily a narrative of the encounter itself. Mm-hmm. Um and this challenge aspect, that performativity of an encounter, um, maintains that um, semi-real, semi-fictional state. Um, but there's no necessarily coherent narrative to be spread and passed on. It's just the instructions of how to invoke this encounter that are spread instead. So I think that's the other side of things. Um, the problem with that is they're often happening on very ephemeral platforms which means that studying them is bloody difficult because mm-hmm. it was over kind of whatsapp a lot of it i think yeah it was initially. it was whatsapp and then spreading to fortnite of all things as well and uh because oh, fortnite is like i mean i've never played it but from what i understand it's almost like it's almost more social media than game yeah i think um there was a there was a dj who did like a virtual gig in fortnite and all sorts it's <laughs> a strange platform it's almost i'm gonna say Zuma Second Life is probably the best way to describe it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, so much, yeah, so much potential. I guess, like, kind of, because I was going to say, like, well, if it's, if they're kind of, if they're so dependent on the medium, maybe the next thing will just happen to be whatever unprecedented things happen to the medium, you know, to, to the available yeah. technology. Some sort of, like, bastard conglomeration of 3D printing and VR will. <laughs> will spawn something else um but i guess yeah i guess this is for another another time but um but no this has been a really really good this has been a fantastic conversation um i've yeah so um i think was there anything else we wanted to bring up um uh let me see what i've got here um Not really. I've got my notes here, and I think I've managed to uh, get a lot in what I'm trying to say. Um, especially around that idea of uh, the uh, original web and web 2.0 re-territorialization thing. And I think, um, yeah, that's that. That is a, a very specific turning point with how creepy pasta behaves. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I think you've got. Uh, Things like Ted the Caver being a very early sort of Angel Fire website, which uncannily is still up somehow. Oh, um, yeah. And then moving into um, things like, uh, I'm going to say uh, Candle Cove, since that's mm-hmm. the one I'm most familiar with, is uh, one that ran through uh, sort of Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. And now you've got this sort of erosion of trusting those platforms in any sense, which is now bringing in. I'm going to say the, the the challenge kind of evolution of it, which is something that is not quite yet studied and I think a lot of people need to get a handle on, myself included, I think. Cool. 
yeah so so yeah this has been this has been interesting this is i think this has certainly created a lot of questions that we will invariably return to on this mm. podcast at some point uh and it would be very cool if you could come on again like um because we uh hopefully for well I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm going to say for a fact at this point, we're going to be doing probably a film specific episode at some, some time that you will be the ideal person to talk to Fantastic. about. Um, but um, yeah. And, and also just many, many questions to consider for another time, but I guess, yeah, until next time, it's always difficult. Do you want to, <laughs> I should always feel I should ask permission if you want to participate in the sign off. Um, um, but, I'm not at all. I haven't got a clue what I would say, but uh. <laughs> okay. Um, oh no, I just say like um, keep it weird and stay signal, but it's cheesy as fuck. <laughs> but, um, basically, it's it. like we um, we um, came up with it because we couldn't think of anything good to have as a sign off, so we just came up with like something deliberately nonsensical and bad. Um, so if you're done with that, absolutely. Um, so um thank you for listening till next time um stay weird keep it signal thank you good night (laughs)